Hello and welcome to episode number nine of Grumpy Old Ben's. I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chirac, where the weather is shitty, but the politics are shittier. And from the left coast of America, I am Ryan Pemrose. How are you feeling today? I slightly under the weather, but uh, we're, we're going to power through this through the grace of cold medicine. Which is good. We had some people already ask, which is a good sign. They're like, when's the next grumpy old Ben's coming out? So even at episode number nine, I feel like we're making traction. And and thanks to all those people for listening and wanting more content. That's a good sign that we're doing at least something right. I don't get it. I mean, in (laughs) my offline life, I get people telling me to shut up all the time. How can these people want to listen to my rants? Well, it depends. Are you you around these people longer than a few minutes at a time? I mean, at least grumpy old Ben's, it's about an hour and they know you're going away. It depends on how quickly I can dodge. So today (laughs) we are going to be talking about online privacy. Yes, this comes on the heel of the last episode, number eight, which if you haven't checked that out, feel free to go do that, which was about ubiquitous surveillance and how the fact that you can't really go anywhere or do anything without in the real world without being monitored. Today's show is kind of a continuation of that, but looking strictly at your online privacy, things like tracking uh, ads and all the good stuff that nobody really gives a second thought to with all these devices, right? So yeah, what people want online is to be able to get along with their own business and do what they want to do. And normally whenever somebody comes up and says, you need to secure your privacy, they immediately think, well, that's really paranoid. Of course. So I was thinking uh, for privacy, the first thing that we should probably do is just get the uh, let's let's address the straw man in the room. And that is the argument that I don't need privacy. I have nothing to hide. Right. Because everybody thinks hey, I'm not a criminal. And you hear this from a lot of people. You know, what do I care that Google is looking at all my messages to send ads to me that they think I want? Who cares if they see where every website that I go to? I'm not doing anything wrong is probably the number one cry of these people. And while you may not get into trouble with law enforcement for what you're doing, I don't think people realize the end result of the constant tracking and there's dangers in that. Well, you know, anybody who claims that they they don't need privacy, everybody has a level of privacy, whether it be in in your online life, in your home. We all, I mean, do you lock your doors? Do you let people random people into your home do you let, let random people into the bathroom when you're showering one of my favorite quotes about that is uh is that we all poop but we still shut the door when we go well if you're polite you do <laughs> well some of us are polite i don't know what's going on in in casa de darren so the biggest concern or the biggest reason why you should be concerned about your privacy even if you believe you have nothing to hide is that you're not the one who gets to decide that. It's not you that decides what your adversary will or will not use against you. It's any potential adversaries out there. They are going to be the ones to collect the data and then decide whether or not or how they're going to use that against you. So saying I have nothing to hide is really saying I can't personally think of any way that this data can be used against me, Right, which is an argument from imagination. If you are limiting your argument by what you can think of or imagine up, then all of the cases that you're not capable of imagining are going to bite you. Well, I think there's still a lot of people who still do not realize that these superstars, well, stars, 
celebrities, better word, that get hacked, mainly get hacked due to innocuous data that they had no problem throwing out there. And celebrities should probably be a little bit more careful about this stuff, but you and I would never think twice about the security questions for our email or for our banking services. Oh, I do. Well, you do. And I do (laughs) because I lie on these things specifically and just keep records of what I told these specific sites, because when your iCloud account with all of your data and all of your photos can be hacked, if somebody knows your email address and your security questions are, what was your first dog's name or what was your favorite song or whatever? Now, a lot of celebrities, this information is already out there just because they've done interviews and people ask all these sorts of questions. And you don't you don't have to be a celebrity. The secure age of the security question is mostly dead because people are posting this information on Facebook. You go back in the timeline and be like, well, here's a picture of this person with caption says my first dog and the dog's face is tagged Bowser. So <laughs> now you know that na- that question. Yes. And it becomes very easy for them to break into your account. So privacy is important, not because necessarily you think you have something to hide, but because your data might be used against you in a way that you were never thinking that it could be. And these are where you start going down all sorts of different rabbit holes. But the bottom line is always do whatever you can to protect yourself and always think maybe I shouldn't give this information or why am I giving this information? Or, you know, when you sign up at a site that asks you like, Hey, what was your first dog's name? Make up a random word and then just note it to yourself. And that's, that's what I, what I always do is I actually have a set of my own personal security questions that whenever, uh, or whenever somebody asks me a security question, I know that what they're, what I need to answer is this other question. You actually hear what was your first pet's name and you change that to what was the name of your first girlfriend or something along those lines. Yeah. I, 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 I translate for, for example, you know, they say, what's your mother's maiden name? And I translate to what was the name of your character when you first played Skyrim? <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's what you have to do in an online ecosystem like this because they're not they're not they actually don't care what your mother's maiden name is or what your first dog's name is what they want is for you to give the second password that is stored in their database so it doesn't really matter whether or not it has anything to do with the question the security question is just a prompt for another password right they want something that you can remember that if you forget your password which everybody does then here's your alternate password Right. So you can use this to let them know you are who you say you are. What are your thoughts on like two-factor authentication? Do you use this if you can, or is that just a, a too big of a pain in the ass for your average user? Well, it is absolutely a pain in the ass, and I absolutely use it. I wanted to call out the, the one other thing that I hear uh, with regards to people saying they don't need privacy, which is, oh, I trust the government, or oh, I trust Facebook, or I trust Google. I'm not here to tell you that you shouldn't. I mean, you shouldn't. But I'm not here to tell you that right now. I'll tell you that in another in another episode. But even if you trust these companies or you trust the government to always have good intent, then remember that you're breaking laws every day that you don't know about and laws can change. Companies can get purchased. The people who are in charge today are not going to be the same people who are in charge later. 
if you are, uh, whether you're on the left or on the right, sometime in the last five years, you probably thought there was a total tool in the White House. The question is, if you trust the people in the White House now, then do you trust the people who will be in the White House four years from now? There's always reasons why you should be concerned, even if you're absolutely certain that the people are trustworthy now. Well, yeah. And even if you're certain that every one of them always has good intentions, which really means that you're delusional. Right. (laughs) Right. Data is breached every single day. And if you absolutely are certain that, yes, I know the guy who owns this company, I can give him all my information. Yeah. Right up until he gets hacked. And now all of your data is on the dark web. You trust everybody out there. And we're living in a society where the biggest news stories are. It appears that the FBI, CIA and the like were spying on the president. So, you know, (laughs) hey, the president, the people, everybody, each other. There is a lot of data. Uh, Not only that, but the problem, the real problem with all that data, other than it's being collected, is that it's being collected one way. Not only are they collecting everything they can possibly find out about us, but they are somehow through some national security excuse managing to keep secret what they're doing well that's it and as we talked about in episode eight ubiquitous surveillance i read a story this past week that showed we were exactly and completely on the right track that talked about the technology that takes cameras that are in different networks meaning you get all these ring doorbells you have your traffic cameras you have the cameras when you go into your supermarket and all this other thing the ability to have the software that can follow somebody as they move between these networks. And this is where this concept of having a huge worldwide network that can connect these things. This is why technology that wasn't so scary when you just had a security camera in the 7-Eleven when you went to go buy a Slurpee as a kid, which was only being monitored there in the store. Now that's available to the outside world. That's available to law enforcement. That's available to the government. Or anybody that knows how to access that. And it seems like there's more and more people who, you know, I don't necessarily want to call them hackers, but let's just call them bad people with computer skills who want to access this kind of stuff. And back in the 70s, uh, like we pointed out in the last episode, the only thing you really had to worry about was being filmed when you walked walked into the 7-Eleven. But now we don't have to go out of our homes to be watched at all. And that's kind of the whole point of this episode. This about the online surveillance. So, uh, what are the various ways that companies, the government, malicious actors, people who aren't you are collecting information about what you're doing online so that they can use it in various ways? Well, for one, we know that companies like Google are not necessarily reading your email. That sounds like some actual person is looking at, but they have computers analyzing the words used in order to throw ads at you. And this is happening beyond Gmail and Yahoo mail. And and let's, let's be clear that if their computer flags anything in that email, then a human will look at it. Well, that's the truth. It's not like humans can't they're storing it. And we heard on the no agenda show this week that one of the producers was trying to send an email from Yahoo mail that had some spooky keywords or something in it that Yahoo refused to mail because it broke their terms of service. So if you don't think they're looking at what's in your email and now they're censoring. Yes. So now they're right They're Now, not only are they looking, but they're using this to censor. I don't think a lot of people understand cookies 
I mean, we'll go back to when the internet first started using these little magical things called cookies. They sound so good, don't they? I mean, cookies. Who doesn't like cookies? They're yummy. They're delicious. Anybody in the EU who has to click away a banner every single time they browse. (laughs) Hey, but I mean, chocolate chip cookies. Everybody likes them. That's a great name for something that can be so absolutely dangerous to your privacy. A lot of people don't realize that there is only a handful of companies that do a majority of the advertising across every site that you go to. What this means is that when you go to their site in the olden days, when I used to run websites way back when, if somebody wanted to place a banner ad on your site, they sent you the banner ad and you put it up on your website. Yeah. Now the technology, which I'm saying now, but this has been the case for a decade or more, the ads are coming from their servers. So that means if I have the, you know, Darren O'Neill advertising company and I'm pushing ads, when you open up my ad on Nick the Rat's site, I go, hey, I see this person. I don't know who you are, but I see this unique identifier that you're on Nick the Rat's site. Oh, and then you go to the Hog Story website and I go, oh, well, I can see the same person that was just on Nick the Rat now went to Hog Story. Now they went to this site. Now they went to this site. What you're describing is called trackers or tracking pings. and they are, in fact, uh, a huge mountain of data that can be generated because uh, if you aggregate enough of it and then you apply some AI to it, they are going to be able to build an amazing profile of who you are based on knowing everything that you've done online. And cookies are just one way to do this. Uh, they, you know, every, every single time that you visit a site, that, that that site has the ability to request a cookie. It's called a third-party cookie if you look at your browser settings. and that cookie is the ad network that the site has contracted with because the ad network wants to give them some money. And that ad network is now putting a piece of data on your system. And that data follows you around. And every time that another site requests it, the, the ad network says, hey, what site are you on now? Okay, what site are you on now? But cookies aren't all of it. There's, you know, as, as old as the internet is, there's a concept called tracking dots, which are even simpler than cookies. And they're uh, an image that is either a, a one by one pixel. Usually that was the original. If you take the background of a page and in the top left corner, you make one, the top pixel be uh, a picture that you ask your browser to load. That's one by one. And it's white. And it's the same back as the background color of the screen. Then you can't see anything at all. But in the instructions for the page, your page is now loading and saying, uh, you know, uh, get me an image from HTTP ad network and slash you know whatever and now the ad network has served you an image and they have in their own personal logs that they served you an image but it's not always invisible even anytime that you visit any blog or news article and you see the facebook thumbs up or the little twitter bird that says click here to tweet about this even if you never click on that i mean obviously if you do click on that then they know that but if you never click on it it doesn't matter because the fact that that was displayed to you meant that your browser went and requested that resource from the website. Right. And on a website, it's almost that nobody cares about that anymore because you're being tracked 99 ways to Sunday where this is still being used, these little one by one images and the like that really gets people into a little bit more trouble is in emails, which almost all clients now want to show HTML, but you can block this, which is maybe something we'll be talking about when we tell you how to protect yourself from all this. This is why I only use Squirrel Mail, which blocks images by default, but yeah. 
which is good because otherwise this is how people know with uh with technology i mean we use this all the time in something like these the services that send out group emails so we use mailchimp for a couple of different things for a couple of businesses that i help out and what happens is when that image loads this is how the people on our side so the guy sending out the email for like my buddy's restaurant i can tell you how many people open this at least a very good guess based upon how many times that image has been viewed so i can actually go in if we've got 500 people on a mailing list you can go in and see exactly who opened up those emails due to this kind of technology every person every email that goes out has a unique little identifying graphic so when you open that email on your end that graphic which is only that one by one thing it's only for your the email that was sent to you boom our servers now know hey Ryan Bemrose opened the email. Great, we got him. I mean, people use this for things like, you know, if you're depending on what kind of product you're selling, but you know, if I'm selling, you know, super widgets and I see that you've opened the email about super widgets two or three times, hey, I know he's a hot and horny customer. I can now just send people who have opened up the email two or three times a follow up going, hey, it seems you're really interested. Here's some more information so you can give me your money. As an aside, one of the things that I, uh, I always enjoy listening to on the No Agenda show, which if you're not listening to No Agenda, you should, is John Dvorak complaining about uh, the number of people who open up his newsletters, which is exactly the MailChimp thing. And I always have to think, you know, that I'm listed as one of those people who hasn't opened the newsletter. Why? Because in my browser and my mail client, I block those tracking pixels and dots. And uh, it's it's harder than you think because the you know, a lot of clients nowadays by default will just not load images. Well, that's great right up until you have a newsletter that's full of images. And then you say, well, in order to experience a newsletter, I have to load them. So you have to get a little bit more complicated than that. But I always find it it funny when he says, well, you know, I we only got a 40% open rate on this newsletter. I'm like, well, I opened it. I just didn't tell you about it. And I'm not saying that people put images specifically in these emails just so you get the tracking image, but a lot of people I think do. a lot of people, right? I think a lot of people do. And it makes absolute perfect sense. And you, okay. So you brought up the uh, targeted advertising. There is something far more nefarious and uh, extremely common than just cookies or tracking dots that the people willingly opt themselves into and uh, it, that tracks them all around the internet. And that is logins. If you are logged in, for example, to Gmail in Chrome and you use that same instance of Chrome to visit websites, every single website that you visit is telling Google that you visited this simply because you're logged in. Every time that you look at the email, for example, Gmail will know that you looked at that email three times and you're the hot and horny customer. And they also have that tied to your name. So why does that matter? Well, the next thing you see is you're going to be surfing the internet on completely unrelated sites, and you will suddenly find yourself barraged with ads for that very product because they know that you're almost going to see it and they know that you haven't bought it yet. And they know that with a little bit more psychological manipulation, they can push you into spending money you might not have otherwise wanted to spend. Right. Which is anything too. I think this should go without saying, but if you're logged into your Gmail account and you're doing searches on Google, 
they store each and every one of those. And that never goes away unless you delete it. You can opt out of a lot of this stuff. But the real question at that time becomes, are you really opting out? Because I know I can go in because I've done this with Google on my account and my wife's account where you could say, get rid of all my location data, get rid of all of my searching data and get rid of any audio that may be on there from using one of Google's devices like your Amazon uh, you know, Echo and those types of things for Amazon. Which, which got- is, that is a, an important and valuable thing to do is to occasionally go into these services and ask them to delete your data. But just be aware that the fact that they collected it at all, you have to trust that they're really deleting it. Right. I don't honestly think that Google is wholly nefarious. They don't have people coming in and going, you know, wringing their hands and cackling evilly and saying, ha ha ha, how can we mess with Darren today? But they don't have to. They don't care too much about your well-being one way or the other. And so they want to, they, they want something. Then if it comes at your expense, well, you're nobody to them. So that's fine. Well, I do believe they're trying to use a lot of the data for good things for your convenience, which we've talked about convenience being the death of your uh, privacy before as well. And the fact that I've been trying to get my Google smart speaker, and I don't know if I want to call it a smart speaker, and I got it free to review. And I thought it was a great piece of audio gear from Clips, who makes some really good stuff. This just happened to have the Google Assistant built in. As you know, with the Google Assistant, because Google has their own podcast store and all this other stuff that you can go and get podcasts, including grumpy old Ben's. I need to make a video of this or at least audio to post on the show because I've been trying to get the smart speaker to play grumpy old Ben's. And every time I say Google play the podcast, grumpy old Ben's, it wants to play a show. (laughs) You get some crappy nineties. Yeah. Grumpy old geeks. (laughs) And I'm like, geeks sounds nothing like Ben's. And what I don't understand is even when I go Google play grumpy old B E N S, I get grumpy old geeks because this is the only way I got random thoughts to play because I'm an idiot when it comes to podcast naming. I've already figured this out. You're just sore that we're our search engine is (laughs) our search engine optimization is terrible. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and when you have devices that you talk to having a podcast called random thoughts spelled R-A-N-D-U-M-B really confuses the things that you talk to because they just hear random. They don't hear random. So I did get the weird thing is. Google understood when I spelled it out, when I said play R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts podcast, it worked. I was amazed and I don't understand why it doesn't work when I spell B-E-N-S, but that's, you know, that's a whole nother rant for getting these devices to do what you want. But I could see where keeping some of this data is relevant. So if I went in and I spelled that the first time, play the random thoughts podcast and spelled it out and it understood me, I would hope that the next time I say play the random thoughts podcast, they wouldn't go pick some other show. They would say, hey, he's already listened to this. This is the closest match. So we're going to use a little bit of this, whatever you want to call it, machine learning or AI to realize what show that I want. So I understand there are some good uses for it, but you need to understand that your data is out there and it could be used for other things. I was just thinking that a hundred years ago, being alone in your house, standing in a room with nobody else around and talking to a paperweight and then getting angry with it and spelling out words to it would have been shown as a sure sign of mental illness. The paperweight wouldn't be talking back unless you did actually have that mental illness. Anything is possible. But, you know, hey, there are people that talk to their animals. And although animals understand a certain point, I mean, I'm, but there are people that talk to 
all sorts of things. You know, I mean, kids talk to their stuffed animals. I mean, we've got a Winnie the Pooh that stands in our foyer and it was a Christmas poo, but you know, Hey, it was a big Winnie the Pooh. My wife likes Winnie the Pooh. So we started throwing a baseball Jersey on it when it wasn't Christmas. And you know, it just kind of stands there. It's a decoration. And I admit every now and then, how creepy would it be if Winnie the Pooh started talking back to you? That's all I'm asking. (laughs) That's when I know the mental thing really kind of sit, you know, but Every time I'll, you know, not every time, but occasionally when I'm going up the stairs and I see the thing, I'd be like, hey, Pooh, I know it's not going to be like, hey, what's up? I know I'm not going to get that. But every now yeah. and then you just go, hey, Pooh, and I, you know, but this is, is that any crazier than, you know, talking to a little device? At least the devices talk back. I, I understand your sentiment. I'm just pointing out that becoming triggered by talking to an ana- inanimate object is, uh, is, is a fairly new thing in, yes. in the minds of sane people. Although we've all wanted to throw a computer out a window and that was because we were typing and it didn't do something right. So we've just changed from typing to voice commands, right? I it's like when voice command when voice commands came in on the scene and uh somebody said, Well, uh don't don't you want to talk to your computer? I said, I've been talking to my computer for years. I just the words I say are actually the words I say are now the kind of things that Alexa says, please don't use that language with me. <laughs> Well, yeah, if you look, you know, as as a programmer, I'm sure you know that when you look at the source code of a lot of programs, there's a lot of profanity built into the comments because (laughs) that's what coders use. That's how you know you have a passionate programmer. So other ways that uh, companies and uh, people can track you online. I was thinking about bringing up uh, browser fingerprinting. Are you familiar with this concept? I am the the concept, not only with when you open a browser, it gives all sorts of crazy information, including the size of your screen, the versions of different you know plugins and stuff that are installed. Basically, even though you're using Chrome or Firefox or you know one of these browsers that millions of other people are using, there's a lot of settings and a lot of things going on, even within that browser. That makes your browser pretty unique to you. Is that pretty close? Yeah. This was a feature that when it was originally invented was actually a total convenience thing. The thing is, when you load up a website, they want to send you a layout and the developer of the site wants to make something that looks good on your screen. And your screen might be tall and narrow. Your screen might be huge. Your screen might be small. So screen size, for example, They want to send different data depending on how big your screen is. They want to send, suppose that they have a chat app. They might want to be able to detect whether or not you have a microphone attached to your browser and send you a widget that lets you click on it and start up a live chat. So detecting all of these things is a convenience for the site developer who wants to light up new features in their site depending on what your browser is capable of. So the result is, in order to make this work and make the web more convenient and more responsive and work better for you, your browser is sending an immense amount of data about your computer, about your browser configuration, including things like your screen size, things like what plugins you have installed, what extensions you have installed, uh, occasionally what other software you have installed can be gleaned, you know, the possibly the name or your username or the name of your profile what i think the big ones in windows are what windows version you're running and then what versions of .net you have installed all of this data is not super secret it's all data designed to make the website work better but 
the thing is that there's such an incredible variety of it that they can take the whole thing, all of that data and compile it down into one fingerprint and then know that when the person with this version of windows and this version of .net and this screen size and that exact configuration there's only a tiny amount of users who have exactly that configuration and if they get enough data there's only one user who has that exact configuration and now you can turn off cookies you can turn off everything and they still know that it's you and a lot of this technology is needed for the things that we take for granted now like responsive websites where if you're on a mobile screen you know there's one column of data that's coming through one column of photos and you know articles, whatever you're reading, where if you're looking at it on a big screen, it gives you a completely different layout. So there's good reasons for this data to be requested. The problem becomes what people are using that data for. And there are browsers out there that are trying to take care of this problem. And there's only so much you can do. And and there's browsing browser plugins that you can add to the browsers who aren't trying to take care of this problem. Chrome. (laughs) Well, yeah. And there's, there's certain things with Chrome that Chrome doesn't do well. I mean, there's a thing. I understand everybody has their favorite browser. I'm just saying that if you want to avoid ads, don't get your freaking browser from an advertising company. Go on. <laughs> but even if you go the route of the Brave browser, which I've been using as my primary browser for a little while now, it's built upon the Chrome framework, but it has most of, well, I think all of the tracking stuff kind of pulled out that they can that talks back to the mothership, but it's still built on Chrome and one place that Chrome still falls behind. I mean, I guess depending the way you want to look at this, but there's a thing called WebRTC, which is what web real-time communication, I believe, which is a protocol that's used for things like this chat that we're using. I would bet you that Zencaster uses it. It's yeah, it's, it's network for web browsers. It helps turn your web browser into an operating system. Right. And for things like, Skype, you know, for video calls, for doing audio chats through the browser, this kind of stuff is needed. The interesting thing is this technology can leak your actual IP address, even if you're on something like a VPN. So, I mean, I'm going through a VPN. I'm protecting my privacy, I think. It's an important step. Yeah. And my VPN's only IPv4 and not six. And if you have six on on your system, this is what I noticed when going to different sites that can test your privacy for the WebRTC. The WebRTC test showed the IPv4, which is the old fashioned IP address that most people are familiar with, the four sets of numbers follow, you know, between periods. Yep. That showed the VPN's address as it should, but the IPv6 was showing my actual address, which means if you were really doing something nefarious or something bad. And IPv6 can pinpoint a computer anywhere in the world, even behind behind VPNs, behind firewalls. It's IPv6 is extremely valuable for turning every computer into a globally addressable thing, which when it was invented was really cool because it meant the end of having to have routers do translations. But if you're concerned about privacy, that translation is yet another layer of obfuscation you just lost. Right. What a lot of people don't understand. I mean, I know we're dealing with a lot of people who listen to the No Agenda show and there's a lot of dudes named Ben, hence the name of our show, that are technically involved. But there are some people that are out there still that don't understand when you have a home network, all of your computers are on the home network. They're all 192.168.11, or there's a variation of that, or there's a 10.10. 
there's a couple of different ranges which are set for private networks, but the IP address of your computer is a local address and it's the router that goes in between you and the big bad internet out there that handles the data and takes it in and gives it to the computer in your network that it has to be. IPv6 changes all that, what you're saying is, and then instead of the router giving you the IP address for a local IP address that's hidden behind your router, you're now getting an address on your computer that the whole world sees. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I meant by globally addressable IPv4, because there aren't enough addresses in, you know, there's only what, 4 billion total IPv4 addresses. And there's way more computers than that in the world or devices in the world. Now IPv4, it was, became absolutely necessary to hide a bunch of computers behind one router and IPv6, there's no need for that. So it tends to expose your addresses completely. So which gives us a whole new bunch of privacy to worry about the average user. If you're really paranoid at this point, I would still suggest turning IPv6 off on your computer. Maybe you have a different thought on that, or is that what you would suggest to? Uh, I, I think that that's probably too technical for most people. And also there are a lot of steps that are less likely to break things and uh, are easier to implement. Well, easy is good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just, just to round out uh, the ways you one of, one of the things that we've been trying to hit on a lot is browsers because everybody uses a browser to address the web, but I wanted to hit a couple other ways that people can track what you're doing online. But do you have a favorite browser before we move on? Is there like one that you would recommend for everybody? Hey, if you're going to use the one that is the safest that you could possibly use, I can describe what I'm using. But uh, what I do is not something that I'm going to recommend for the general public. The browser that I'm using currently is called Pale Moon, which is a fork of Firefox. But I do tend to switch that occasionally. But the thing is, there's no browser out there that is configured as locked down as I would like it to be. And uh, I was going to talk about this in the ways that you can make yourself safe, or at least the ways. Well, let's just say the way that I make myself safe is by uh, I turn off JavaScript for the vast majority of websites. And that protects me from an immense number of exploits, of tracking, of concerns. But it also has the side effect that most people are not willing to put up with, and that is it breaks almost every website. <laughs> yes, it does. Now, do you just go into the browser setting and do this, or do you use something like a plugin like NoScript? I actually, I have a plugin called NoScript installed, and that plugin it defaults every website by default is not allowed to run scripts, period. And then if there is a site that I trust the owners of the site enough and I need to be able to run scripts in order to get the functionality, then it is two mouse clicks away from saying, allow this site to run scripts. So I'm guessing grumpyoldbens.com. Are you allowing that or don't you trust me? I, I don't. Uh, but more <laughs> importantly, I don't need to. Grumpyoldbens.com is a WordPress site, which uses the old ancient technology of HTML, which renders just fine. One thing I will tell you is if you're looking at news stories or blogs, there's a lot of them that run scripts to the latest trend, especially with news outlets is to pop up paywalls or to put giant banners in your face saying, we need you to subscribe. Or uh, one of my favorites is we detect that you're using an ad blocker. Please turn off the ad blocker in order to view our site. And the funny thing is that all of those things, the, the thing that detects your ad blockers, 
the thing that pops things up on top of your, it's all implemented with scripts, which means that if I go, if somebody sends me a link to an nytimes.com article, I load it up and all of the script infused ads don't load. The paywall doesn't load. The ad ad blocker detector doesn't load. None of that loads. You know what loads? The only thing that loads is the text of the article (laughs) because that is the original HTML. And that's fantastic. It really is because most of these sites, it's not like the old fashioned days when you'd go in and you had a membership site to where you had to log in before you could access it. They all seem to be using scripts now, which isn't the best way to do business, but they know everybody is lazy and everybody's ignorant of the fact that you could turn off a setting in your browser and read as many articles as you wanted on most of these sites. Now, the real problem with this approach comes with the new web frameworks, the the web 3.0. Is it are we up to three now? It's hard to tell. The frameworks that the the hip new front end developers all work in. And uh, you know, one of the one of the big ones is is React, which is uh the the framework that Facebook uses to create their fancy reflowable pages that move around. And the problem with these frameworks is that all of the content on the page is now rendered by JavaScript, which means that if you're not using script at all, you get nothing but a blank page. That right there is probably the thing that kills it for almost everybody is, oh my God, I can't use Facebook because it just renders a blank page. I'd better turn on scripts. And once you do, you've lost any security benefit and they're tracking you again. Now, for the people who absolutely have to visit Facebook because their lives are not complete without it, this solution's not for you. Personally, that's a pretty freaking good reason that I don't visit Facebook. In general, and and this is again uh, a mentality thing, it's kind of like going back to our cord cutting episode where I said that if content is hard to get, then maybe you don't need it. In general, if a web page is rendered entirely with scripts and doesn't render correctly or doesn't work or is completely broken, my default position is eh maybe I don't need to visit that site. Maybe they just don't need my business. Now, that said, there's a lot of sites out there that I really do need to use. You know, For the ones that I know I'm going to use all the time, my email, for example, although Squirrel Mail doesn't use much scripting, then I go ahead and whitelist them. And then uh, my browser just says, yeah, go ahead and run scripts here. That's fine. And uh, if for a site that's one-off, I have other browsers installed, I actually for things that absolutely must have, you know, they say they only work in Chrome. Uh, what they really mean is the Chromium browser and Pale Moon is based on Firefox. So if I need to render that, I actually have installed a, a browser called Ungoogled Chromium, which is an open source project where they take Chrome, the Chrome source code, and they strip out everything that, that Google's put in for tracking and they actually hard code all of the hard coded Google URLs they break. Right. Which is good. Yeah. And at least we can take solace in the fact that we're not worrying about flash anymore. Cause that was a scourge back in the day of oh, uh, doing disturbing. websites. Yeah. Flash was one very disturbing. If you are going to go the route of a modified browser, one thing that I would warn you about is that all of the things that you can do to turn off, you can, you know, that you can limit cookies, you can limit scripts, you can limit 
the tracking dots. You can even, there's plugins that allow you to change your user agent so that your browser is not sending as much data to, to try to thwart fingerprinting. All of those steps will go out the window if you install a plugin that can track you. And uh, this comes up a lot. Uh, a lot of people will have a, a plugin for their mail or a plugin that lets, you know, Facebook Messenger, I think, has a, a browser plugin. But there was uh, uh, some popular plugins a while ago that uh, people discovered that they were actually sending your entire browser history was uh, stylish, I think it was called, that would send your entire browsing history to a third party server. Just every URL you clicked on, it just sent everything you clicked. This plugin would say, oh, you clicked on this one, send. So that's something to be careful of. Well, yeah. And that's along with if you're using one of these third party browsers that are allegedly there for your security, understand where you're getting it from. And you have to trust the source with any of these things because you are now saying, okay, this company is telling me they've gotten rid of all the Google stuff. So this is what I want. And you go there and it turns out that, yeah, they got rid of all the Google stuff, but now they're tracking you. And there's some company in you know, Beijing that you've never heard of. So you have to know where you're getting the software from. You have to verify that plugins the same way, because you're absolutely right. Plugins work in such a way that it's kind of like you could be, your house could be Fort Knox. You know, and that's if your browser, if when you start, say you do have a totally secure browser, that's Fort Knox. That's like you're, you're absolutely completely safe. You can install one of these plugins, which basically opens up a window and says, come on in. And people don't realize that, that you can install one little thing that can totally throw everything else that you've tried to do to take care of these privacy issues right out the window. So it, it is not for the faint of heart. It is something that has to be vigilantly kept up with. And it used to be back in the good old days when this, we were just talking before these smartphones came around, it was, you had a desktop machine or maybe a laptop, you were running through a router and all you kind of had to worry about was having an antivirus piece of software. That was the start. And then after a while, it became the necessary to have some kind of firewall software and then windows you know microsoft start putting that into windows but there are still better software firewalls out there now the fact that all of us are walking around with a computer in a, uh, talking about our cell phone we're walking around with a device that is constantly connected to the internet along with gps and all of this the mobile area i think has added just it's taken what was maybe a small problem with home users and exploded that by about a million times because what people don't understand when it comes to the mobile aspect of things, especially people that love the free Wi-Fi, you know, when you walk into Starbucks, one of the most, um, you know, not amazing things, but one of the most interesting things and amusing things to me where when devices start coming out, like the, what do they call it? The pineapple, the, the guys that did, uh, you know, hack five, the show that used to be on, uh, Oh, yeah. uh, whatever network uh, that was, uh, Darren uh, Kitchen. They I mean they created a little device which was basically a little router and you know battery operated that they could take into Starbucks that would fool people into signing in because uh, when you go to these places, they're just looking for an SSID and they automatically connect to your device. Your device connects them to the internet or you know through whatever the other Wi-Fi hotspot is, and they see everything that you do. 
And I think a lot of people are completely oblivious to the fact that people are even trying to do this. And that's a bad thing. Okay. You brought up mobile, which uh, I just wanted to, to, Go back and, and finish up with the last one. The mobile is it it brings out all kinds of new ways. Now, I, I know that we've been kind of focusing this on on desktop so far because of course being uh old people, we grew <laughs> up with desktop computers and that's how you access the internet. But the the simple fact is that desktop computers are also they're still some of the only computers that you are actually able to control what they do. Mobile uh, operating systems and mobile browsers have every one of the problems that we have with the desktop browsers with browsing, uh, except that it introduces two new problems. The first is you don't have the configurability. Most of the things that you can do are a lot harder to do on mobile. It's harder. A lot of browsers, it's harder to install plugins. Uh, a lot of, uh, it's harder to connect a VPN. It's harder to, and and it's possible to do a lot of these things, but modern mobile operating systems do not give you the freedom to, for example, opt out of Google services if you're on Android. If you don't want to be plugged into a Google account and you run an Android phone, you have to root your phone. Right. You can't log out. But the other much more nefarious thing is uh, that mobile brings, and this is uh, kind of like our discussion with browser plugins is apps apps are have all the same problems that we discussed with plugins except that they now have full access to your operating system you know it's it's always fun to go to some website or some company and uh you know you try to browse and they say download our app and the moment that you do you are bypassing any protections that you might have on your browser and instead giving that company free reign to do almost anything they want with your operating system. Right. And it is very hard. I mean, I think Apple is still a little bit more locked down as opposed to Android. But then again, Google's a much bigger. Well, I don't know if they're actually a bigger data collector anymore than Apple. I think they're probably on equal footing there. But at least with the Android, it's easier to. I, I think that Apple is is a lot less public about what they do with the data. How about that? That I would go along with. At least Android, there is the ability when my ZTE Axon 7 had the problem uh, when ZTE had the problem with the United States government and they stopped them from doing updates. You know, it's bad to have an Android phone. It's you know, just like it's bad to have a Windows phone or a Windows. Well, nobody has Windows <laughs> phones has anymore. Windows phone. uh, I, I was the last person. I was the last person in America to have a Windows phone. And now I'm on Android, too. And thank you for your courage. But <laughs> I tell you, for the you know, Windows forces the updates and it's for a reason, although I know we're going to be doing a show about, you know, having all these forced updates. But oh, I have lots of rants ready about forced updates, you know, but when these operating systems sit there in a a flaw is exposed, which the, the big news this morning I saw was. There was such a bad flaw that just came out in Windows that they released a patch for XP, something that was supposed to be totally dead years ago, whatever this vulnerability was. Uh, Yeah, Intel processors. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're patching Windows XP still. So it was bad to have a ZTE phone when it's the company that does the software updates and they were told they can't do business in the country anymore. So they stopped doing updates. The only way to keep that phone relatively secure was I learned how to do this, which was root the phone, find a ROM of somebody else that put software together for it, install that, 
but again, you have to trust that the person on the other end isn't trying to steal your data. But it's most of these guys are doing this as an open source kind of thing. There's multiple people involved, so it's relatively safe. But it was much safer to go that route, root the phone, download a ROM from somebody I didn't know and install that rather than let a phone sit there without security updates. So th- these are the kind of things that people who never update their phone and stuff and just think it's never going to happen to me. My phone's never going to get hacked. You're probably already hacked. Just a guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're we're all already hacked. That's that is absolutely true. So you mentioned the Wi-Fi pineapples, which uh, is is a great example of a a, ty- a class of online attack called a man in the middle. And it, it is it is, in fact, uh, it's pretty nefarious because any time that you send unencrypted information across the network, then, uh, you know, the you're, you're not directly connected to the site or people that you're talking to. It always does a bunch of hops across the Internet and any single one of those could track and start pulling apart your data. But there's a far more common man in the middle attack that every single one of us is having to deal with all the time, which is tracking by your ISP. ISPs have a, a concept called deep packet inspection. Uh, are you familiar with this? Yes, I am. And this is the reason why a lot of people run VPNs. It's everything going in or out of your computer. They're looking at the data on a packet by packet thing, which is how a lot of people in the early days of torrenting got either kicked off the network or they had their connection slowed greatly because your ISP could tell what kind of traffic was coming and going onto your computer, which makes sense because they're the ones serving it to you. And that that was, in fact, when uh, when the phrase deep packet inspection first kind of entered the public lexicon in maybe 2005 was when torrents and file sharing started to come across and ISPs started saying, no, 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 we want people just to load static web pages. Don't transfer files. They take too much bandwidth. And so they started doing things called uh, something called packet shaping which is that every time that you send a packet to a website or receive one from a website, your ISP, Comcast, for example, will open up that packet, look at the data, and if they detect that, oh, this is a piece of a torrent or this is from a video website, then they can automatically deprioritize that. And um, this practice is the thing that net neutrality was supposed to defeat, although it's a, a particularly misguided piece of legislation. It certainly got a lot of traction a few years back. Right. Now, how does something like the secure websites, when you see HTTPS instead of HTTP, how does that change? The, does that do anything for the deep packet inspection or can they still tell? Uh, it does help. So HTTPS means uh, it is an encrypted transport for web pages. Uh, what that means is that the body of the web page is encrypted. So an ISP or a man in the middle cannot crack open and see the text of the page as it goes by. What they can still see, though, and filter on and do stuff with is they can see the headers and they can see the site name and the URL, because those are all things that are necessary. In order to encrypt it at all, you have to open up a connection to the site and therefore you have to tell the ISP what site that you want so that it'll forward your packets to the right place. So if they see the you sending packets to a so-and-so torrent site, then they already know that they can 
cut this down. Well, and they also know that you're going most likely to another user, not a website. So they can tell in the ports, usually there's ranges that had been used, although that can be changed now. But there are ways to know if you were going to a web server or if you were going to another uh, another residential account for doing the file sharing. And that's understandable that. Well, there's there's heuristic ways to guess. They they don't have a good way to know because they, well, uh, and they were fine with guessing. That was yeah, the problem. Too, that's the problem because, <laughs> because they're fine with guessing wrong. Yes. You know, so and that's the other thing that there, there's some of these technologies and there's some of these security measures which are really good things like if you go to your bank's website, you know, they'll say, well, make sure that it's HTTPS. And most sites now you can force that. So if your bank is good, that's going to be forced that it has to be HTTPS. But the thing that you get into trouble with is when people see that little lock on the browser window saying that this is a secure page and assume that that means it's really the page that they want to be on. So that doesn't tell you anything about if you're on the right page. It just means that there's a security certificate yeah, for the page. That's you're on. the problem with the little lock. What what it really means is that only your browser and the site on the other end can read that. But what it doesn't tell you anything about at all is whether or not you could trust the site on the other end. Right. And that's a totally different thing. And there's one thing that we've heard from all banks, financial institutions and all that. How long has it been that we've been told over and over again? Never click on a link in an email. How long has that been? Oh, I I don't Years. know. I, I I'm not that old. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you're getting there. <laughs> the other day, I got an email from my bank, and it's a fairly small bank that said, "Hey, we're having problems with our servers. This, this, and this. If you need to access our system in the meantime, follow this link." And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? You're sending me an email." With follow this link. And I was, of course, I was in the no agenda troll room and our buddy Baron Von Walkman was in there who works in this kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, give me the address and I'll sandbox it. I'll run it through whatever cool shit that he does to, you know, to see what this link was. And it looked like it was a legitimate link because it looked like it was at the domain, which was correct. And he did run it through the filters and everything was fine. But I'm like, how can you do this as a bank? the, The simplest http trick in the book is that when you write a web page and you click on a link the text of the link is something that they want to show you and the actual link goes somewhere else and it is the simplest thing in the world to say please click on this and the text of the link says yourbank.com right the actual url goes somewhere else and why do they send these emails out because they work because some people are still clicking on those things People are falling for it. I was just utterly amazed from how often we've been told not to click links, rightfully so, in an email. And when the first time my bank has a problem, they send a link in the email. So I want to get my money out of there. Was this legit? Yes. This was your actual. Oh, my. Yes. This was the point. This was (laughs) was actually the bank. Please tell me you're not with a bank, are you? What do you mean with a bank? Well, I mean, uh, I, for example, uh, I bank with a credit union. No, and it's an actual bank. Don't, yeah. First Midwest oh, Bank. Okay. And- that totally different episode of Grumpy Old Ben's, but do not use the national banks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm seeing why, because these assholes can't even get the most simple things right. I saw that. They're and I was just like amazed with their technology. Yes. 
the 1880s. Because I'm telling you. Well, yeah, I saw this and I'm like, well, this has to be a fishing thing. But it's a, it's a relative. I mean, it's not super small. There's they've got maybe twenty something branches throughout the Chicago area. So it's not like it's a you know one man mom and pop bank, which there are still a few of those out there. But you know, it's small enough to where the amount of fishing attacks have been you know nil. Nobody fishes. I I get them all the time from like Chase and you know Bank of America, who I don't have accounts with that are fishing, and I'm like, well, yeah, I know that's not me because I don't have an account. So obscurity, you know, security by obscurity works. No, it's it's security by not using the same services that yeah <laughs> yes so yeah i was very disappointed that that our bank decided that their answer for having problems was hey click on this link because that was the about the dumbest thing that i can possibly imagine that is amazing yeah it's just uh, setting people back uh, decades here's, and uh, here's here's a quick hint if uh if your bank's website goes down and you absolutely have to do some banking that day walk into a branch if they still have them that's the <laughs> other that's the other problem you know and there's it, or maybe have money at multiple banks at least for security reasons usually now you know you can open up a checking account with no fees as long as you have at least a couple hundred bucks or something in them you know maybe you need to have things spread around a little bit just for when your bank does have a major problem and, and you need cash but you know i know there's another thing when it comes to security and i know some people are fans of this stuff and some people aren't. I do use a password manager that is hosted by a third party and I understand the risks. I trust the company. They say that they don't have access. It's all encrypted on my end and I believe them. I understand. Do you, do you want to say what company it is? I, I could. It's RoboForm who've okay. been around forever. I'm not and, familiar, but okay. Uh, they, they were one of the first ones and I know they're not one of the super popular ones at this point, but. You know, as of yet, nobody's proven that they're lying about this. As of yet, I've never had any problems with any of my accounts being hacked or anything like that. And I've been with them as a paying customer, which is something that's rare for me with a lot of these services for probably over a decade. And their system works. They have apps that work across Android. They have apps that work on the Apple iPhones and the iPads and stuff like that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I said, do you want to mention them? Not do you want to do a native ad for them? <laughs> hey, I'm just saying why you might want to use something like this because you should use. I think it's safer to for that than using the same username and password on like every site you go to, which a lot of people do. Um, yeah, well, uh, wandering around in the middle of the freeway is safer than using the same <laughs> username and password on every site. Yes. Signing up for Facebook and then proudly declaring that you're with ISIS is safer than <laughs> than using the same username and password everywhere. But there is. That is true. And there's a lot of things, you know, just kind of, I guess, to do a wrap up here on things that I would recommend yeah. for online privacy. One of those would be if you get your own domain, one, if you can't, even if you're using something like Gmail, I don't I guess let me ask you this question. Do you know if any other email service out there? that you can use free like any of these proton mails or anything else. Well, a lot of people recommend proton mail and I'm just going to give my opinion on that and that is that as of yet they certainly seem to be a legitimate privacy oriented company and it's good to see those out there because so many people recommend proton mail uh the one thing that I will caution is it is a still a closed source service and at the end of the day you are trading your blind trust in Google for blind trust in Proton Mail and it might currently be warranted but just be aware yeah that can change at any time uh now I, I, as as should 
probably go without saying, of course, I run my own mail server, but not everybody's going to be able to do that. Not everybody should want to do that because honestly, it's a pain in the ass and you shouldn't want to do that. Right. But even if you have it with get your own domain, get an ISP that you trust. Google, the one nice thing about Gmail is they let you if you're we have a, you know an email for my the Random Thoughts podcast. It's Random Thoughts podcast, I believe, at gmail.com. But if I want to sign up for something, I can do Random Thoughts podcast plus anything else that I want to add at gmail.com. To be honest, most software will allow you to do that. If you control your own email server, it's trivial to set up aliases that let you do that automatically. And in fact, a lot of, of modern software, you can just put the plus in and, and it works. And I suggest using that just for the reason that if somebody ever wants to hack your account, you have that extra layer of security. So if your you know, email address that you're using, which a lot of these sites force you to use an email, putting plus something else, even if it's something you know like plus Amazon or plus whatever. Yeah, this isn't just for hacking your account. The other thing that this does is if you know that you need to create an account with foo widgets in order to start uh, get a service you just want to make a one-time purchase but they require you to put in an account you can say my account plus foo widgets at your domain and now when you start getting spam at <laughs> and lots of it <laughs> at my account plus foo widgets it, you automatically know which companies never to work with again Yes, which was another another plus on that, but it does make it harder. So that's why if you're going to trust a site like RoboForm, and I do, and there's other ones that are out there like LastPass and a, and a few others, I would recommend either getting an email address that you use for nothing else and using that because it makes it, it makes you a lot less harder to be a target if people are trying to go after your accounts. You know, do something. You know, go every little step that you can and have an account strictly for that and use random passwords i mean that's one of the best things that roboform did and everybody does that now but this was years ago when this started they were one of the first ones that had a little button where you could press i want a 15 character password including these characters not using these click random and it would give you one and that was an easy way never use the same username and password and everything always change password because that's the one way people seem to be getting hacked yes uh majorly at this point is one asshole has bad security yeah your email and password leak, and people are trying that email and password on every other site, which also means if you do the plus or use a unique, you know, for me, using different things. So I have DarrenO'Neill.com. You know, it's like you can use different things for Facebook and Twitter. Use a different, you know, username for everything, different email address for everything. The one caution I'll give you is that Gmail's been around for more than a decade. And for the most part, anybody who is trying to do nefarious things with your email they know the plus trick. They know to strip off the thing after the plus. Right. But if somebody is trying to then hack you at the grumpy old Ben's membership site, they don't know that you signed up with Ryan Bemrose plus Darren sucks at gmail.com. Uh, how, how did you know my, <laughs> I just, I guessed. Okay. Don't worry. I, I can see all. Yes, that, but that does help. Uh, just the, the plus thing was a really cool idea initially, but a lot of people are now hip to the trick, but you're right. Use Use unique emails you, uh, is a really good idea, and if, if you have the ability to make them all go to the same place, then so much the better. But even if you use the same email for everything, use different passwords. For the love of God, do not use the same password at every site. Because like you said, the moment one site gets hacked and the sites are getting hacked every single day, that database is out there 
And now they'll just use this, try to use the same password on another site. Right. Because, yeah, the minute that, you know, these big bank or whatever it is that that has a password, you know, Joe at blow.com with the password of blow me, every login of every site is now somebody's going to try that on there to see if that works. And a lot of times it will if you're using the same email and password. So that should go without saying. But unfortunately, uh, I don't think it does. And when you're on mobile. I mean, I know this is getting to be a little bit, you know, paranoid again, but if you have the ability to do so, if you have a couple of bucks a month to get a VPN like NordVPN, and I've been using them and Mulvad, so I'm not want to necessarily do a review. Wait, what do you, you like, you chain VPNs? Do you like run from one VPN to connect to the other one? Is that how? I have, I mean, I've tried that just to see if it would work, (laughs) uh, but mainly I've been trying two different VPNs just to see. Because like Nord, I've run into some problems like Amazon doesn't want to load. So I think there are some sites that are seeing it's a VPN yeah. and lock them out. I haven't had that problem with Mulvad. Uh, Mulvad's a little bit more. If you're really paranoid about everything, you can send them cash in the mail and they'll just, you don't even have to give them an email address or anything else. So there's, there's some interesting stuff going on there. But with the VPN, if you're mobile, like when I go into, we have a restaurant here that we go to all the time that has good Wi-Fi. And now that we are totally metered and we pay by the gig uh, on our mobile, I keep mobile data off unless I really, really need it. So when I get into a restaurant, you know, I'll connect to the Wi-Fi. Having the VPN does give you a little bit more security. Again, though, you're trusting your VPN and you're not trusting the local restaurant. I mean, so you have to have trust in somebody or you can run your own VPN. Everything online is about ahead and almost everything in society is about knowing who you can trust. And that's uh the the internet has not made people more or less trustworthy. People have always been people, but what the internet does is exposes you to orders of magnitude more people than you ever would have encountered before. And if there's one skill that you can develop in order to function online, it is come up with a good bullshit detector. Yes. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. And if you're you have to realize that you are now living in a world where the device in your hand, meaning your cell phone, not anything kinky or anything, or your computer, <laughs> you. What are you talking about? The device in my hand is a cat right now. Well, I hope he's not plugged into the Internet, because if he is, I, you've taken it one step too far. He's currently mourning. But, he's mourning the loss of Grumpy Cat. Well, everybody has. I mean, he was seven. That was like a billion in human years, right? Something I don't like know. that. But the device in your hand. Somebody halfway across the world, as far across the world as you can imagine, has the ability to access that. That's the crazy thing about online privacy as opposed to in real life, in-person privacy, is that it's not just the people around you that can look at your data, that can see what you're doing. Anybody in the world with access to a computer can access your devices if you're not careful, and that's not even trying to be fear mongering. It's like, that's the reality that we have today. If you don't keep things patched, if you're not careful with your passwords, these things happen way more like they happen way more than I think people believe, especially with everybody syncing things to the cloud, like Apple's iCloud and other, there's other devices that do that. But when you're syncing all your data to one place, that's also a problem because there's only one place they have to go to get it. But my recommendations if you want to be super and utterly paranoid and that's not necessarily a bad thing and you want to avoid tracking at all costs and i do the first would be stop tracking me okay i'll stop tracking you the first would be 
run a VPN, both at home and mobile, because that will protect your traffic. It'll protect your ISP from seeing what you're doing. The other benefit of a VPN is, again, as long as you trust the people on the VPN, when you're connected to a VPN, you use their DNS, which means your ISP doesn't even see what websites you're trying to go to, which people don't realize that either, I don't think, is that if you're not on a VPN, every time you go to a certain site, the DNS entry goes to your ISP. So even if you're... Well, that, that's that's only true if you use the ISP's DNS, which is another thing I don't, re- I don't recommend doing. A lot of people don't know you can change DNS servers. It's yes. fairly easy to do. Google has a, a public DNS server anyone can use. Cloudflare has one that anyone can use. I personally use OpenNIC. I mean, there's a variety of them out there, and there's a, there's a lot of reasons to mix and match, because if one goes down, you at least have a fallback. Most computers allow you to what, put at least two DNS in. Some allow you to put in more. And of course, run a pie hole, oh, yes. and that'll protect you from a lot of ads, and that'll help with the DNS as well, and you can rotate through DNS there. But you know, use a VPN. Be wary of the DNS. Use HTTPS when you can. Get a browser that blocks all the tracking from Google and tries to block all the ads and all of this kind of stuff. And in the end, that's about the best you can do. There are things that even try to throw like fake searches to like Google and all that and and a bunch of fake things to DNS servers. And, you know, that just tries to bury your data more than anything else. And I think that's only for the ultra paranoid of us, but uh, I mean, hey, if that's your bag, then well, feel free to like with like with all security. There's easy things you can do to get sixty percent, and everybody should be doing those. And that's the some of the recommendations we've been making here. And then there's harder things that you can do to get up to ninety percent. And I'm doing a lot of those because I'm, of course, you know, as as a dude named Ben, I, I know what they're doing. I know what they're trying, but. But I'm also more paranoid than the average dude named Ben, I think. And then there are really hard things you can do to get up to 99%. And not even I do those. But there are some people out there who do. And then it's impossible to get that last 1%. So security is all about layers. What level do you want? And my recommendation to anybody listening to this is unless you know of some specific issues or specific reasons why you need stronger security that just use a password manager, use browsers instead of apps. Don't stay logged in everywhere. Never click on links in your emails. There are some very common sense, basic things that are going to put you ahead of 60% of the people out there who are getting hacked every single day and having their online data stolen and their identities taken and their online personas essentially taken out for a joyride. And we want you to be paranoid up to a certain extent, unlike Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, you know, when she let her email servers at home be not really well protected. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you wonder. You say you can go up to that 99%. Does the cell phone that the president carries, is that 99%? Is that maybe the one phone in the world that maybe gets up to 99%? I doubt it. That's the scary part, isn't it? If there's one phone in the world that goes up to 99%, that phone is probably a Nokia E71 Held by one of the smartest hackers on the planet. President Trump is not even in the, in the running. But people should be giving him this advice. Although who knows what kind of people, you know, you always have to wonder what kind of tech people they have at these highest levels of government. And I don't even want to go there in this episode because that just gave me chills up and down my spine when thinking about online privacy and the types of things that could be leaked out there. So the, the best advice we can give is be safe, take 
the, at least the bare necessities. I don't think most people are going to want to go the no script route once they turn it off and see they have to work every website that they go to. No, no. Browsing the web is a lot of work the way that I do it. And I find that it personally lends itself to a much more mental discipline, but also more mental health because a lot of sites that I don't need to see, I just don't see. But I know that not everybody is like me. That is true. And we are very, very happy about that. Not in a bad way, though, but they should learn that, you know, there is there's a level that you need to go to. There's the insanity level. And if you're an average person just wanting to stay off of Google's radar and staying away from targeted ads, it's fairly easy. If you think the NSA is after you, (laughs) you're fucked. Don't use any device. Go get that cabin in the woods. Yes. Go go be Uncle Ted. And and move. try for some non-extradition woods. (laughs) That is a very... Very good. Uh, I think that's the best advice we could have. And we can end on that. As with everything in society, everything that you do carries with it a level of risk and you're never going to be able to mitigate or you're never going to be able to mitigate all the risk and you're never going to be able to avoid the risk. But the most important thing that you can do is know what risks you're taking and what kind of things that you're doing to invite more or less. Exactly. And we do have an executive producer for today's show. And we truly appreciate the donations that have come in, the people that are listening, that are giving us feedback. When people are saying, hey, we're looking for more shows, like I think I started the show out with, that really is a very humbling thing. It's, it's, it's an honor to know people are listening and enjoying what we do. And the donation and executive producer for this show is Sir Eric VM, Baron of the Valley. And he has a note in here that says, I'm glad I'm old. I don't know if we are, but he's, he said he's glad he's old. Great podcast. Episode eight is the beginning of greatness. It is valuable. And we appreciate that, Sir Eric. Episode eight was a lot of fun with Void Zero. And there was a lot of arguing going on. And, and people had mentioned that, which was it was good that we three of us all had a little bit of a different take. And I forgot who said this in the troll room, but they're like, you know what? I listened and then. I, I made my own opinion. I made my own mind up, which is what we're trying to do here. We know. Well, I know I'm not always right. Do you do you admit to that for yourself as well? I, I, I also admit that you're not always right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, sir. Baron of the Valley. And I completely agree with all but one thing. And that is that I would claim that Grumpy Old Ben's episode one was the beginning of greatness. But we can agree to disagree on that point. Episode eight actually was a lot of fun. We started talking about uh, surveillance culture and, you know, 1984 Harrison Bergeron stuff, which is a little bit out there already. And then somehow we moved into pure sci-fi and it was a delight to do the show entirely. (laughs) I look forward to doing more shows like that. I'd love to do more shows with Mark if he's interested. And uh, I'm just loving the hell out of this grumpy old Ben's experiment. It's, It's my first foray into any kind of podcasting and i'm having a blast at it and thank you for your courage for doing this show a little bit under the weather today as you can tell uh you know maybe sir bemrose's voice isn't as velvety as it normally is so thank you for uh, you know getting out of bed pumping up the cold meds and uh, and sharing your knowledge with us today and and my lunacy well th- these cold meds only adds to the lunacy but hey so i digress people seem to like that so broadcasting from the rainy left coast of the united states i'm ryan bemrose and from deep in the heart of middle america just outside of chirac i am darren o'neill thanks for listening <laughs>